Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R for an hour of science. We've got a huge show uh, prepared for you today. Uh, I think we're going to start off in Oxford in the UK, then we're uh, heading back to Melbourne, and then we're going to head over to New Zealand with a range of guests, which I hope you thoroughly enjoy. There's some really good, excellent science communicators coming on, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so I'm going to uh, throw to a quick uh, announcement from the station and then when we come back we'll be in Oxford hopefully if all goes well Triple R on FM digital online via the app we're joined now by Dr Susie Shee from the University of Oxford and the University of Melbourne's physics departments uh, good to see you again Susie good to have you back on the good show good to see you as well thanks Shane thanks for having me now, you, a few months back, took an extraordinary decision to head back over to the UK, where you're sitting currently now in quarantine, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, but what possessed you to leave Melbourne and, and head over to back to Oxford? <laughs> so, a couple of reasons. Um, so, I have this slightly strange setup for the last couple of years where I've been joint between the two universities in, in some capacity. So my my sabbatical period was actually coming to an end in Melbourne. Um, and so I actually had to come back over to, to the Oxford side. Um, but specifically because of my research fellowship here and the research that, that I'm doing here. And finally, my lab had reopened over here. So um, so it was kind of time to, to come back over and push things forward because we've lost about 18 months of progress, really, with, with the labs being closed. So I was fully vaccinated when I left, and you know, obviously that was a calculated risk to take to to come back over. Yeah, do, do you still have a lot of students in the UK that you're managing, or you know, early career researchers and so forth? What's it like over there? Yeah, so I have I still have three PhD students over here actually, um, and obviously I've uh, set them all up with co supervisors, but um, they're all going into their they've just started their third year of PhDs, so hopefully most of them will finish in 2022. Yep. Um, but of course, you know, again, especially with one of them, um, because the experiment's been delayed. Um, uh, well, he's done a lot of simulation work instead, but we hope, um, yeah, we hope everything will get finalised next year, in which case my, um, yeah, my workload over here will be a lot lower and then I'll become just visiting lecturer over here instead of, um, instead of actually trying to hold down two academic jobs, which is a bit much. <laughs> yeah, a bit much. How, how, did, how did the students react when you, you must have walked in one day and said, hey, I'm, uh, you know, the Southern Hemisphere, that's where I'm heading, uh, catch you later? Yeah, so um, actually these three students, when they started, um, I was transparent with them about that in the um, recruitment process, and that's why, we, uh, that's why we set them all up with co-supervisors and embedded them in research groups where they could have um, good interaction even when I'm not here. But that said, I'd already gotten used to um, – I, so I was early in the sort of Zoom culture, right, because of this back and forth. So my groups on both sides were used to having Zoom group meetings well before the pandemic just because I was um, – I was traveling and, and on the wrong time zone. Um, so so they kind of came into it with open eyes, uh, which which I'm grateful for because um, it it would never be nice to come into a PhD and then suddenly discover that you're 
your supervisor is going to be going literally to the other side of the world. Yeah, that'd be a bit tough. Um, now, here in Australia, we're just starting to, you know, universities are reopening. There's even the hint that um, international students will be coming back onto campuses, you know, which is which is amazing. Not, I mean, and to be fair, not just for the money, but because they bring a lot with them beyond that, um, which changes the way our universities look. What What's it looking like at the moment in the UK? Because obviously the freedoms there have been very different to what we've experienced mm. here in Australia. Yeah, so I guess we've really gotten to sort of COVID normal over here, or living with COVID as normal. Um, the universities have gone back to um, operating in person. There are obviously still some restrictions in place, and those are put in place by the colleges and the university. Um, so, for example, uh, in my department in physics here in Oxford, I actually um, wasn't allowed to use my office just for office work. Um, until October, even though all the restrictions lifted in in roughly July. So there have been most workplaces have been managing it based on individual risk and local case rates, things like this. But um, Oxford have actually been very good with their you know early testing service. We've got all the lateral flow tests available for free all the time, and um, it's it's felt quite safe, uh, surprisingly, given the case given the case rate. Um, but that was just for me a matter of. You know, the first few weeks when I came back over in August, I really was uh, terrified because, of course, this is before the recent wave that happened in Melbourne. And so I, I literally went from zero COVID mm. to 30,000 cases a day. And the psychology of that was uh, quite challenging. Um, but really, it was a matter of um, going to a few small things. Um, and then, you know, you have your first COVID scare where you texted the next day and told, oh, someone you know, someone there has tested positive and then you freak out and you do all your lateral flow tests and things. And then about five days later, you reassure yourself, okay, no, I'm vaccinated. And so I haven't picked it up. Um, it's managed to, to protect me. So over time that um, helped me at least psychologically to get the confidence to, to get back out there doing things. But I have to say, I'm still doing mostly outdoor and mostly small things. And, um, and we've also sort of set up um, with friends of mine and colleagues of mine, sometimes, uh, additional protocols that were put in place ourselves. So, for example, yeah. I have one group of friends where when we hold parties, particularly because it's a party, it's close contact, right, um, we all do a lateral flow test and post it to the WhatsApp group um, before we arrive. Hmm. So we've we sort of created our own normal <laughs> yeah, look, I mean that that I mean, and that's a spectacularly smart way to go because at least then you you also walk with some confidence that you're safe and that you'll you'll be okay. And that and none of these things are perfect, but every sort of layer that we add makes things a little bit better, I think. Now, for, for those yeah. of our audience who haven't um who didn't hear our last interview, which was some months ago now, just, just give us a little bit about your research and what you're you're up to over there in the UK at the moment. Yeah, sure. So uh, my research is in a field called accelerator physics. Um, so it's kind of related to particle physics, which is exploring the fundamental constituents and forces of the universe. And that's kind of where I started. Um, but I actually shifted over into working on the physics of the particle accelerators themselves. Um, so there's many, many different uses of particle accelerators, which we can talk a lot more about. There's about 50,000 of them in the world. So not all of them are these gigantic ones like the Large Hadron Collider. Um, but my research over here in the UK um, actually focuses mostly on uh, what we call high intensity hadron beams. So that is usually beams of protons, um, like we have at the Large Hadron Collider, you'll recognize the word. And the aim of the game is basically to try and get as many 
protons as possible into a beam. And and that might just sound like a bit of a game, um, but it, it's sort of a different challenge to the very high energy that people are going for in some experiments with these very high energy collisions. Instead, when you're looking at having a very high intensity of a beam or lots and lots of protons in one small area, um, there's different challenges, but it's just as important because if you think about a collision between particles that's going to produce data that's going to help you find Higgs bosons or um, whatever else might come next. It, there's multiple factors that go into that. The energy is one of those, um, but actually the number of collisions is also very mm. important. And so actually increasing the number of particles in the beams is um, actually part of what's just happened in, in the upgrade um, process to the Large Hadron Collider, um, what they call the high luminosity upgrade. High luminosity is shorthand for increasing how many collisions you can get, right? Um, so my experiment over here is actually a scaled down experiment. Um, it's actually not a particle accelerator at all, but it can mimic one in the lab. And with that experiment, um, what we're working on is trying to understand how these very intense beams behave and how we might be able to design new accelerators in the future that are fundamentally designed from the ground up to handle these very high um, intensity beams. So there's a, a, there's a couple of issues with these high intensity beams. Um, when you get charged particles all in one space together, they don't ignore each other, right? They're charged, they're electrically charged. And so they actually interact with one another. Now at low energy, that interaction is a repulsion like we learned in, in primary school, high school, that electrical charges repel each other if they're the same type of charge. Actually, once you get up to high energy, there's additional effects, which mean there's both attraction and repulsion between different parts of the beam. And it gets to be a very complex process because it's also then interacting with the beam pipe around it, with the magnets around it. It's just a complete electromagnetic mess, basically. Mm. <laughs> um, and so, so our job as accelerator physicists is to really understand the dynamics of what's happening with that and to try and avoid losing these particles. Because if you lose even one in a million particles in the Large Hadron Collider, you're going to drill a hole in the side of the beam pipe and destroy the machine. So this right. is yeah. a high precision game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I suppose a lot of this also, um, you know, mindful, we, we only have a few minutes, but a, a lot of it comes back to issues, as you said, of all those other different applications as well. And many of those would require miniaturization and, and sort of better efficiencies. And so being able to produce all these different types of beams in a more controlled way would, would presumably play into a lot of that, especially in medical devices and so forth. Yeah, that's right. So there's benefits sort of across the board, right, from that sort of fundamental collider physics all the way into what's happening in, in hospitals. And actually, um, there's a really interesting confluence at the moment of my work in the medical area and this work in the high intensity area, which have until now been separate in my career. Um, but actually, recently, it's been discovered that if you deliver radiation for um, for therapy, for cancer therapy and radiotherapy um, or proton beam therapy if you deliver that very quickly um so a few a few milliseconds even up to maybe 100 milliseconds um then it it has what's called the flash effect on tissue so the idea with radiation therapy is you try and kill cancer cells and keep healthy tissue unharmed right um and this very rapid delivery appears biologically to have an increase killing effect on the tumor cells and a decreased harmful effect mm -hmm. on the normal cells and so people are now shifting toward this question of well 
our current technology can't deliver beam that quickly because it's not intense enough. Um, and so there's actually now this, this question of, oh, we're going to have to start to think about all this physics that I've been working on this completely separate domain in the domain of, of medical accelerators. So yeah. that's a, it's very early days with that, but um, we may yet see some of my research strands coming together. Yeah. Oh, it's fascinating stuff, uh, Susie. Now, before we let you go, I, I did want to talk about your book because, um, and we won't get into why you're in quarantine over there in the UK, presumably some sort of exposure, but you, you're stuck in the house, but it's, it's good timing yeah. for you because you're going through the proofs of your book, which I believe is being released in April. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, yeah, it is. It is good timing to be stuck inside for a week. I just got contact trace. That's all. Um, but uh, so the book is called "The Matter of Everything," and the subtitle is 12 Experiments That Changed Our World." And it is a journey through twelve key experiments in the history of particle physics, my sort of my field, um, and how it is that we actually learn what we know about the universe on this minuscule scale, not in a theoretical sense but in a hands-on practical bring it down to earth how do you actually learn this kind of way and that involves lots of um very human struggles uh, there's lots of interesting characters in the book um and then it also with every experiment that i've chosen it also takes us through the long-term view of the impact of doing this kind of curiosity driven research so with every experiment i also take us through to well what became of that experiment or what became of the information that we learned the theories that we developed etc as a result of that data and what we find is this amazing story of everything from electronics uh, to the chips inside our computers to radiotherapy technology to mri ct and pet scanners basically a whole lot of our modern technology and all the things we rely on in our modern world a lot of them came from this fundamental curiosity driven research but over time scales that most of us are not used to dealing with. Yeah. Uh, look, it sounds fabulous. And it's due out in April. So due folks, out 28th of April. 28th yep. of April, um, folks, you can pre-order. In all pre -order. good bookstores. All good bookstores. Yes. <laughs> all good bookstores. So that's the UK and Australian launch date. And um, the US one will be a little later. Uh, people yep. can pre-order. And I do uh, highly encourage you to pre-order because um, that will uh, help the book succeed in the world. And um, I, I know at least that Dimmicks in Australia have the pre-order link live already. And I'm sure lots of other retailers do as well. Fantastic. Well, folks, have a look for that one. It's uh, The Matter of Everything. And it's Susie She, And her surname is spelled S-H-E-E-H-Y. Did I get that right, well Susie? Yep, there <laughs> yes. we go. Um, so you might want to look that one up. Susie, thanks so much for chatting to us. Now, you're back on the 8th of December, I believe. Yeah, I leave on the 8th, and I'm doing oh. 17 hours in, in one go to Darwin. Uh, so oh. I arrive on the 9th. <laughs> Good effort. Well, once you're back, we'll get you in the studio, and we'll talk more about particle physics. But thanks so much for joining us today, and I um, hope you get out of quarantine quick and safe travels on the way home. Thanks, Shane. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and GoGo. -Go. I'm Dr. Shane. On the line with me now is Dr. Stefan Vervoort. He is from the Walter and Liza Hall Institute and the Peter Mac here in Melbourne. Stefan, good morning. How are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. Nice to nice to be on the program. Oh, look, it's great to talk to you. Now, first of all, I have to give you the hugest congratulations because you have been awarded one of the uh, very prestigious CSL fellowships. Now, this is, uh, as I understand it, one point two five million over. Is it five years? Yeah, it's over five years. So two hundred and fifty a year. 
um, which I will use to, I'll be starting my lab next year at the Walter and Eliza Hall. So yep. it, it's an amazing timing to be the recipient of this, this fellowship. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess we should clarify the people that you're not, you're not getting $250,000 in your pocket per year as part of the fellowship. This is for the research work. Absolutely. Yeah. No, this, this will all go to, uh, to cancer research and, and understanding how, um, the process called transcription works. Yeah. Um, yeah, now let, let's get into that. Um, tell us, I mean, what does transcription mean? What, what is this process in the body? In the simplest terms, right? So you have DNA in your cell, but, and that encodes all the information that we have in the same way that a library contains all the books, right? Mm. Yep. But in and of itself, that doesn't do anything if you're not reading the information that is within the books. And we, every cell contains a, a messenger factory. And this messenger factory copies these messages that are in the DNA encoded in, in that information. And, and these messages really instruct how the cell should behave, right? Hmm. And um, as you can imagine, it, like, that has to be very tightly regulated because, you know, in our body, we have different cell types. We have uh, neurons, we have intestinal uh, cells. And it's really how the DNA is read by this cell's messenger factory that determines the identity of the cell. And, and when this goes wrong, right, so mm. when the wrong messages are, are selected, that can invariably cause human diseases, developmental diseases, but also, of course, cancer. And that's particularly prominent in, in, in particular blood cancers where this messenger factory is, is perturbed, yeah. Mm. And is this something that, um, like many things as we get older, these sort of errors just turn on in some way or is it uh, or is it something where I might be born with a sort of malfunction in that that messenger factory that I, I just can't get rid of um, there are very rare cases where people are born with um, mutations so I think mm. the most the reason why um, so generally people are understanding of mutations in the that's really where yep. there is an error in the message right yep um, and and what my work really focuses on is not sort of errors in the message but maybe when wrong messages are sent at the wrong place and the wrong time now i don't think that that process over your aging mutations increase with age yep but i don't think that the machinery itself uh, necessarily functions any poorer when you get older but um it is it is this dysregulation that is fundamental to cancer yeah yeah and do we have any feeling i guess maybe this is part of what you're you're looking into of what sort of causes this to happen suddenly at some point in our life i mean you know we 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 see cancers in children we see cancers in people in, you know in the later parts of their life and and it is perhaps more frequent when you're older for various reasons but um but we do see it across the entire age spectrum so do we have a feel for what's sort of turning this on or what causes this error system to start to come into play yeah i think um so so what is interesting i think with these large um efforts to sequence human genomes the, the dna sequence we've come to understand that these um, key players that regulate the cell's messenger factory. So it, it's really finely controlled. I want people mm. to understand that this is not just an on-off switch. It's it, There's many, many regulatory points. And the, the proteins or the, the genes involved that regulate this process, they can be mutated or dysregulated in other ways. So um, they, they might be highly expressed or turned off at the wrong point. And, and that can occur all throughout your, your normal development. And when that happens that then can cause cancer, right? And, and in children, you see these, these mm. recurrent breaks in the DNA that cause that. In, in adult patients, it might be mutations. 
Yeah. yeah. And in terms of treatments, uh, how far along are we? Because I know with, with blood cancers, there's been some spectacular successes there, in particular coming out of WeHi. Um, but, you know, we've also been hearing a lot over the last decade uh, about CRISPR and their ability to actually, yeah. you know, make, make real amendments to, to our DNA in ways that we couldn't do easily in the past. I mean, how is that sort of playing out with, you know, with regards to these sorts of cancers and what's driving them? Um, so now what my work has, has been focusing on is we are developing, and, and their companies are working on this as well, um, very selective inhibitors that sort of target the key components that regulate this messenger factory, right? And um, the idea is that in cancers, when it's dysregulated, they are extra sensitive mm. to, to anything that perturbs the, the functioning of this messenger factory. And therefore, they're exquisitely sensitive to targeting. And, and that we've demonstrated that you can target key components and that has therapeutic benefit. And some of those are in, in clinical trials. Now, as to the CRISPR part, and my work uses CRISPR-Cas9 uh, systems a lot. Um, they haven't, I think, progressed to the point where we are using Cas9 directly to target cancers, but it has really, really allowed us to rapidly progress our understanding of, of disease. So, um, I, in my work, we engineer specific mutations. We engineer. Um, we can now screen the whole genome, so we can mm -hmm. we can make mutations in every single protein and see how it affects the cancer's growth, how it uh, affects tumor resistance to therapies, and and we have made some really groundbreaking discoveries using Cas9 CRISPR systems. Yeah, yeah, it, it must be amazing having that capability now to look at, as you say, every single protein and look at how how they all affect, um, you know, what's going on with the cancers. I I think back to you know what you said earlier about this idea of targeting you know, these specific problems, what, what exactly does that mean? I mean, I think people would be familiar with, you know, there's radiotherapy where you're using radiation to treat cancer, usually when it's a, a tumorous sort of scenario. There's chemotherapy, which is used to treat, you know, tumor scenarios, but also cancers that are distributed throughout the body. We've heard a lot more recently about immunotherapy where we're, you know, getting our immune system to start doing the job for us, which is amazing, probably where yeah. we will be heading, I suspect, more in the future. Where, where does this sit in that spectrum or is, or is it different again? In, in my opinion, yeah, immunotherapy is incredibly exciting and, and my work is focused on that a little bit as well. There's some interesting interplay actually between mm. Immunotherapies and these these cancer specific uh, like uh, messenger targeting, because I mean, sorry, I'm sort of getting distracted here, but we can also um, some of these immune genes are also dysregulated by uh, the cell's messenger factory, and we can target that using small molecule inhibitors. So um, th there's actually interplay between them, but I see this as a completely separate. Um, um, type of therapy right. that's next to the chemo, radio, and immunotherapies. And I think the goal over the next few years is to make it more specific for the cancer cells and less sort of targeting the normal cells in your body. That's the whole purpose of what my work will focus on, to, to make it more targeted or tailored towards the cancer cells. Yeah. And I'm guessing, I mean, you know, one of the things we should always be clear about is, you know, this stuff has a very long tail, doesn't it, in terms of time frame. We're talking about a, a fairly, I mean, you mentioned one clinical trial, but we're talking about a fairly long and protracted sort of battle, if, if you will, in getting this, this to work um, against cancers. Are there, are there any sort of treatments based on, on this sort of technology that are available now, or are we still a fair way off? 
Um, there are some that are, are they available now? That's a very good question, actually. Um, we've written, we recently written a review about, um, in, in Nature Cancer, about targeting transcription. I think it's primarily clinical trials that are on the go to yep. see um, where, how they can be applied. But it, it's very exciting. And, and sometimes you get these, we try to predict, that's another angle, is, is we try to predict where these, these therapies should be applied. What type of cancer would you want to treat, right? And mm. sometimes you get these unpredictable results where some cancers are very sensitive to a certain type of perturbation or inhibition. And that's, that's what we're trying to understand as well. What causes that? Yeah. Now, Stephen, before I let you go, I should ask, have, have you managed to get into the WeHo building as yet? I think they, they have researchers back in there. They've been doing well. Have you, have you, you know, how far away are you from setting up there? And um, have you even been in the building during this pandemic? Has it been able to be accessed? Yeah, I've been uh, I've been going back between uh, between Peter Mac and and, and Wehi over the last uh, few months. Yep. Um, so I'm sort of working in between uh, at the moment, and but my lab will open uh, at the beginning of next year. So it's a, it's a really exciting time. Yeah, yeah uh, getting some work in though. Yeah, look, fantastic, and, and congratulations again on getting the CSL. Um, you know. Fellowships, 1.25 million over five years. That's great. You're working at two of the most prestigious institutions in, in the country, if not the world, with regards to cancer research. So, And it's only a short walk between the two, which is uh, it's kind that's of nice true. as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and two of the best buildings in the city. So, Stephen, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck with the work once you uh, get going there and you get your lab set up. And um, hopefully we'll get some uh, amazing outcomes. Thanks so much. Thank you very much and good luck with the show. Thank you. Folks, uh, that was Dr. Stefan Vervoort from a part of the Walter and Liza Hall Institute and the Peter Mac here in Peter Mac uh, is the cancer hospital in the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre, the big, beautiful building near the roundabout, just, uh, just near the University of Melbourne there. We are going to take a break for some music and in a moment, we're heading to another part of the globe. We'll be talking to our next guest from New Zealand, all about volcanoes and lava and all the stuff that, you know, you just loved as kids, right? Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. We're having a huge day today of international guests. And on the line with me now, all the way from New Zealand, is Dr. Janine Kripner. Janine is a volcanologist and is actually part of the Smithsonian Global Volcanism Program in Washington, D.C., but she is working remotely at the moment uh, because of the pandemic. Welcome, Janine. How are you going? Hi, good. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm good. Now, first of all, I want to find out from you, how did you initially get interested in, you know, volcanoes and, you know, this area of sort of geology? I mean, I, I think all of us, me included, you know, that was the stuff in the books when we were kids that we loved, right? I mean, it's it's an exciting area, but there's a big difference between, you know, I ended up in physics, so it didn't take with me. What What happened that got you into volcanoes? Oh, it's a good question. Um, like every other kid, I think I, I just loved volcanoes. I really did. And when we went down to the volcanoes south of here, I was in love with them. Like I couldn't get my eyes off them. And I was 13 years old in geography class. My teacher wrote volcanologist on the board. And I sat back in my chair and thought, that's what I am. Hmm. And that was it. That was many years ago now. And I'm still following the same dream. Yeah, that, that sounds fantastic. And, and when when did you see your first volcano? Because I suppose in Australia here, I, I grew up not far from a place called the Organ Pipes National Park, where you can you can see into the lava flow from you know a, a long long ago volcano here in, in in Melbourne, and it's amazing. You can see that um, 
I want to say hexagonal structure. You can mm. you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Eleven of the salts, yeah. Yeah, which is just phenomenal. You, you see it and it's phenomenal. And, uh, the sort of vis- visible access to that is amazing in this location. But in Australia, we don't have right, – now I'm going to get corrected here from a geologist. I know we don't have what the common person would call an active volcano, although I know these volcanoes have had activity in the last 10,000 years, which I think classifies them as – active anyway you can correct me if i'm wrong but but in new zealand it's a very different situation i mean you how many are there in total that are active at the moment in new zealand oh uh we we active in an active phase of actual eruption right Mm. now we have fakati white islands um we also have some related volcanoes up in the kumadek trench but as far as New Zealand, the landmass would be White Island. We had an eruption at Ropehu in 9596 and yep. a much smaller event in 2012. And then before that, there are eruptions going back quite frequently at those volcanoes. And we have a young volcanic field mm. in Auckland under our major city too. So I grew up surrounded by volcanoes. <laughs> yeah. When did you see your first one? How old were you when you saw oh, your first well, volcano? Oh, uh, well, my my. Where I grew up was surrounded by extinct volcanoes, mm-hmm. although I didn't know that when I was a little kid. So in my eyes, I grew up around them. Um, but I was pretty young when we went down south to see the the more active ones, not actually erupting, but we could see the ash plume from Ropehu in 95, 96 from here. Wow. So pretty young, pretty young. Yeah. And uh, when was the first time you got to see lava, sort of, you know, actual lava flowing, <laughs> red glowing, you know, the stuff that we all see the pictures of and go, wow, like how old were you uh, when you first saw that? I haven't seen the lava flow at a volcano yet. Oh, I studied wow. the more explosive stuff, yeah. but I have seen a lava flow that was man-made in a lab for experiments. And that was in 2012, I think. So I've seen lava, but not coming out of a volcano. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's probably. I mean, in some sense, that's probably a good thing because it means you haven't been within the proximity of a volcano that's that <laughs> active, which is, you know, not you know. Well, yeah. I've I've been on very active volcanoes, but not yeah the more explosive kind. So ash plumes, not lava flows. Yeah. And in terms of um, one of the things that I, I, I suppose is important for people to get their head around is just what, what is sort of correct information about volcanoes and what is misinformation. And we, we see the news reports and they give us some fancy photos, which I've got to say I love. You know, it's amazing stuff to look at, like nature in all its glory. It's phenomenal. But but the information around volcanoes, because it has such an impact on on people's risk assessments and the way in which they go about their business. And of course, we saw in 2019, the White Island, um, you know, sort of activity there leading to, as I recall, I think it was 22, I think it was 47 people that, that were hurt and 22 or so died. I mean, this was quite an extraordinary um, scenario. So, so there's a lot of really important risk assessments being made. But, you know, what sort of misinformation are you coming across around the world with regards to volcanoes? I mean, I'm guessing this is part of your program in Washington. Oh, it's it's so much. And misinformation is more, like, the communication and stuff I do is more outside of my job. Mm. Um, I Something I'm not doing anymore, but I was doing in my job, was writing up volcano eruption reports. So I saw a lot of misinformation there too. But just generally, it's everywhere. It's there. There's misunderstandings, blatant misinformation mm. on every aspect of volcanoes. And it is a real problem because everything's online now. Mm. So you might say, well, these people in the UK are posting this about a volcano in Indonesia. It doesn't matter. Well, no, the people in Indonesia who might be impacted by this and need to make potentially life-saving decisions 
can see this information yeah. now. And we know that false information travels much faster and further on the internet than any facts because it's, I don't know, volcanoes are pretty spectacular by themselves. I don't know why people need to make this up. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's the way it is. So it's, it's really bad. And the those of us who are speaking about what's actually happening is so outnumbered. Yeah. Can you give us an example of the sort of misinformation that, that you're seeing? Yeah. So um, I think we've all seen the La Palma eruption in the mm. Canary Islands yep. that has been going on for the last, oh, goodness, months. nearly two months yeah, now. Yeah. Um, so what is time anymore? There's, there's, there was a study done which has been since um, – re-looked into by multiple researchers and proven that it's not an accurate study at all talking about a mega tsunami. So talking about a massive chunk of the volcano or the island sliding off into the sea and causing a tsunami along eastern America, Americas. So all the way down to the bottom of South America, all the way up to the top of the United States. And unfortunately, because that's such a flashy topic, a BBC documentary was also done on that paper, which has since been refuted. And so a lot of us have been getting messages from terrified, and I don't use that word lightly, terrified Mm. people in the United States and South America, Central America, just petrified that they're going to get wiped out by a mega tsunami because of this relatively small eruption. Mm. So that's something that's really impacting people's lives. Um, I mean, we're all living in a pandemic. People don't need this additional fear. Yeah. It's, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. It, it's it's interesting to me because the, the sort of information with regards to volcanoes and eruptions would be, especially for the people nearby, would be, you know, important on a daily basis. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming just as we have um, when there's a flood, you know, there's information on the direction and expectations of floodwaters and where they're going to hit and when. I mean, we have this a lot in Australia. And, and to be frank, you know, the, the Bureau of Meteorology and other, other groups are really good at distributing that information to various towns and so forth. You have a similar thing with regards to lava flows and, and ash and all those things. And presumably, you know, locals do not need that information being distributed by those who are not on the ground or not, not in, in the know as to what's actually happening because it might cause you to go in the wrong direction, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, it depends on where. So in the Canary Islands, I actually asked um, the, some of the local volcanologists there if they're having a lot of trouble with people asking about the mega tsunami, and their answer was, no, we've got much big problems here. Mm, right. um, but... So if you have a community that has a good relationship with their um, officials and they know where to get information from, then that works well. But if that can, if that's getting muddied up by the misinformation out there, that's when uh, trust can start to wear down. But there's the other scenario where, for example, Bali um, in Indonesia, which is a highly, you know, as a lot of Australians know, it's a huge tourism hub. Yep. So you might have a lot of people in some of those areas that don't know who the officials are. So in that case, they're going to be getting their information from different sources online. And a lot of us now go to social media when we want information. And that's unfortunately, it can be one of the worst places to go, especially Mm. YouTube. Don't go to YouTube. (laughs) I have a YouTube channel on there, but don't go to YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, it, it's it's interesting um, when when you talk about that sort of lack of knowledge that locals have in other places and so forth. I know. I mean, recently we had a magnitude six earthquake um, here in just outside of Melbourne, a couple of hours out of Melbourne mm-hmm. in New Mansfield, and you know, for for most people in Melbourne, it was like, sorry, what what's this? You know, we we just we don't get those sorts of earthquakes in Melbourne. So in a sense, we're like a whole lot of tourists who'd gone to Japan or you know somewhere where they're more common, mm-hmm. and we we just really didn't know you know what was what was up and down. And, and for many people, I think, you know, I, I noticed there was one um, there was one wall collapse on some side of one building um, in Melbourne as a result of this. And I think I saw this this image of this wall from like twenty five different angles because we had to show something because otherwise um, there was really nothing you know that we could show in terms of damage from this earthquake because there was no damage. And you know, we we have that sort of mindset whenever we go to foreign countries that. Everything's sort of taken um, care of, but I know. I mean, I remember the first time I went to San Francisco and stayed with a colleague, and he gave me like this twenty-minute sermon on what to do if there was an earthquake. And coming from Melbourne, you know, it was really valuable because I really didn't have that information. And I, I'm guessing, you know, in many of these cases, it's a similar thing where people just, you know, people want to go to these places because they're spectacular. Part of that is because of this activity that that's happening in the in geological terms, but um, the dangers are just outside our realm of understanding and, and, and experience, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, like, it's it's amazing Once it, when it comes down to it. Like, we all know what a volcano is. A volcano is something that we see in everything from movies to cartoons mm. to on the news to in documentaries. So volcano is part of our vocabulary, right? Two years ago, how many of us knew what an epidemiologist was? Yeah. Yep. So it's one of these fields of rare, rare-ish fields of science where we all have some sort of connection to it. Like, oh, I've seen a volcano in there. Oh, I thought those were so cool when I was a kid. So there's this huge awareness of them. But when it comes to the really important things, like what is volcanic ash? What is the difference between a lava flow and a pyroclastic flow? The knowledge there is, is dangerously low. Yeah. I found when Kilauea was erupting, we were watching the the um, the lava flows in 2018, which were devastating for the local communities. And then at the same time, there was a large eruption that produced a pyroclastic flow at Fuego in Guatemala. Now, what a pyroclastic flow is, is it's a very fast-moving um, avalanche, essentially, of hot rock, volcanic ash, which is pulverized rock and glass and crystals, and hot gas. So mm. it killed many, many, many people. Um, it went through several villages. Really devastating situation as well. But I found myself talking to a lot of people about the difference between these two very different processes. And that was one of the many times I've sat back and thought, oh, wow, the knowledge about volcanoes is so much lower than you'd think. Yeah. It's it's interesting because um, one of the things I've often said is just because people know the word for something doesn't mean they have solid understanding. And a great example of that is the term DNA. It's thrown around like everyone understands it these days, but in reality, actually, that's not the case. And we have to be really careful when we're communicating science to acknowledge that just because there's familiarity with a word doesn't mean there's understanding. You, you must see that a lot, especially with terms like you know volcano, pyroclastic flows. I suspect fewer people know, but you must come across that a lot. Yeah, I really do. I really do. It's you know when when you have an eruption, especially one that's uh, has a, a decent run up time. So before a volcano erupts, it gives us signals. So it gives us earthquakes. It releases different gases from the magma. A lot of gas comes out of magma when it's rising. There might be deformation. It might actually cause the ground to 
physically move, even though it might be so small, we can't see it. We can measure this stuff. And there's all these signals a volcano can give us. Now that lead up time can vary significantly. It might be hours. It might be days. It might be weeks. It might be months. Um, for your listeners who remember the Agung eruption in 2000, late 2017, that was two months. So then when you have these huge run-up areas, you get people looking at these graphs put out by the Volcano Observatory that gives simply the number of earthquakes. Mm. It doesn't tell you anything about depth or size or type or what that means. And then you get people giving out predictions. Yep. And it's not, the more you know about something, the more you know you don't know, right? It's the case with everything. So once you know a little bit, you think you know a lot more than you do. And the more that you know, the less confident you are. <laughs> It's interesting when you mention some of those those parameters that we can measure. Um, you know, how do you determine whether or not there's going to be an eruption? Because I, I can imagine if you have something like Mount St Helens, where you know there was significant change in shape and and so forth. You know, you, you, I guess it's hard to predict exactly when, but you know something was happening there with this particular mountain that was it was changing quite significantly over a relatively short period of time. But how do you go like with something like? Um, La Palma and some of the, the other volcanoes, I mean, how do you know, first of all, that this scenario that's happening now is going to occur? But second, what's going to happen next? Do we have, a, do we have an understanding of where this will go? Oh, that's a really good couple of questions there. So to under, to tr so don't predict volcanoes. A prediction would be saying there's going to be an eruption on this day and it might be this size mm, or, or yep. it might be this specific location. What we do is forecasting. So it's really important for um, people who are more geology-based volcanologists like myself who go out and look at the rocks and say, this is what this volcano has done in the past. That involves even in itself a geochemistry, so looking at the chemistry of the rocks, the crystals, um, the, the trapped bubbles in it, the, what the rocks look like and what they tell us. So we can look back. I mean, some people look back millions of years to see what mm. a volcano did. I tend to work on the much younger things, but we can do that. So once you know what a volcano has done in the past, which is a key, um, and if you don't know, you need to figure that out pretty quickly, um, then there's a whole team of volcanologists, usually at a volcano observatory or a team that goes in to help as well. And they, and they can be assisted by other volcanologists at universities or other observatories too. It's a really interdisciplinary team like field that works as a team. So we have geophysicists that look at earthquakes. That's like, I go to a geophysics talk at a conference. They're talking about something as simple as earthquakes. I do not understand what they're saying. It is right. that technical and yep. that specialized. And then you have the gas team or the gas people, and they're looking at the different kinds of gases, the amounts of gases. You have, might have remote sensing people using satellites. And, and of course, there's the technicalities of all of the instruments detecting these things. Um, deformation, so the movement of the ground, that's geophysics again. Uh, you can be looking at the fluids around the volcano. Is there a crater lake? Are there hot springs coming out of it? Um, so there are so many different signals that need to be interpreted by specialists in that specific thing and all of that put together. So the more information you get, the clearer image you might have of how much magma can be rising. So if you're getting a lot of deformation, a lot of gases being released, a lot of earthquakes of specific kinds, that helps you narrow down what kind of eruption you might have. But the important thing is we can... This, there's a lot of success stories about when volcanologists have understood that something might happen have evacuated people and saved lives. Mm. So it does work. It is complicated. It is hard. But we're a global field working together to understand these things. 
Yeah, I suppose it's. Um, I mean, we'll take a break in a moment, but uh, it's always that scenario too, where people get pretty annoyed with you when you give them a a false sort of a positive and and you evacuate them and it wasn't needed. But as as we say on those occasions where it actually is, um, you know, it's forecasting. It's not. It's not a perfect science. It's forecasting. You know, I mean, people don't get as annoyed these days when the weather's out by a few degrees. But it's it's a similar scenario. You know, you can't be definite about it, and in this case, it's saving lives. So you know, if if we have a few false positives, then then so be it. It's not the worst thing in the world. It's a lot worse than us not knowing at all. So now we're going to take a, a quick break. Are you happy to stick around for a little bit longer, Janine? Excellent. Um, we will uh, have some important station announcements for you folks, and we'll be back in just a few moments to learn a little bit more about volcanoes and lava. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Uh, welcome back, everybody. We are speaking with Dr. Janine Kripner from the Smithsonian Global Volcanism Program, currently uh, hibernating in New Zealand due to the pandemic. Now, Janine, uh, we've talked a lot about volcanoes. One of the things we haven't dived into a lot, though, is lava being this this amazing scenario. I mean, just give us the, the sort of the quick version of, you know, where does lava come from and what does it do in terms of release of pressures and so forth for volcanoes? I mean, what, why do we get it? Ah, lava is amazing, isn't it? Like if you think of holding a rock in your hand, we've all picked up a rock in yeah. our lifetime. If you think of how hot something must get to melt or to melt a rock mm. is amazing. So um, lava or magma, when it's below the surface, it's lava once it's at the surface. Uh, it actually forms at multiple de- depths below the crust so, or the, within the crust, below the crust. Depending on the location, the chemistry of the rocks that are melting, um, the particular type of zone, so of subduction zone like we have here in New Zealand or if we have a hot spot like Hawaii or we have rifting like the East African Rift. So the tectonics is really important as well. So the magma can form way down, way down below the crust, so tens, hundreds of kilometres and then slowly make its way up and it's changing as it's going. So mm. it might pause for a few hundred years and uh, we call it evolving, the magma evolving. It might turn into a magma that could be a lot more explosive and dangerous. So magma is essentially melted rock. When it's below depth, it's usually got a lot of crystals within a lot of solid stuff. Once you get enough liquid melt together, that's when you can start leading to an eruption. Mm. So it's, it starts to rise because it's le- it's more buoyant. It's buoyant, sorry, it's less dense. It is buoyant within the crust. And then you get to a certain point where it's kind of shallow where gases start coming out. And we can detect that, thankfully. It's a bit of a nod that there's lava magma down there. Oh, gosh, I'm getting confused with lava and magma words now. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, you're essentially, when it gets close to the surface, that's when pressure can be a bit of um, an important point. So if you have gases coming out of the magma and forming bubbles and they can't escape, once it reaches the right conditions at the surface, that can release an explosive eruption, depending on the magma type. So basically everything, the answer to everything is it depends. Mm, yeah. And it's complicated, but it's melted rock, which is amazing. It's extremely hot. If you stand close to it, you'll actually get a sunburn from the radiated and radiative energy. It, it's it's painful to be near. Mm. It's just that's just how hot this stuff is. So we're talking 
the cooler lavas are on 800 degrees. The hotter lavas are around 1,200. Wow. Yeah, that's hot stuff. Now, with um, with this stuff, like as you said, like, there's so much material, different material in lava. I assume that affects the way it flows because we see some of these images where it looks like a torrent river kind of scenario and others where you kind of could walk backwards and just say, you know, you can't get me. I'm faster than you. Uh, is, is that right? Is it all is it all dependent? I'm assuming that's not so much temperature but composition that really changes the flow case characteristics yeah it's it's actually an intermix between the two so the chemistry of the melt and where it's coming from and how fast it rises also like how much gas it has there are so many different properties which affect how it flows or what what we call the rheology of lava Mm -hmm. and that's not my specialty that's the specialty within itself (laughs) there's physics that goes into modeling lava flows um but if you have a really hot flow that is also a runny type of magma lava once it's at the surface, you're going to get these really fast moving flows. Now they do cool down pretty quickly, mm. but if you get a tube forming or a tunnel, a large tube forming, it can actually keep it insulated, like putting a jacket on in a winter's day, keeping it hot and it can go for many, many, many kilometers away. Mm. So the longer it can stay hot, the longer it'll stay runny, the further it can go. Once it starts cooling down, that's when we can get these really slow-moving things. But some of them do come out of the vent cooler and thicker and just yep. form these really thick, slow-moving lava flows. And we're seeing those at La Palma as well. Yeah. Oh, look, it's amazing stuff, Janine. Uh, you, you have a, a super cool job. I, I you know, always wish <laughs> I'd grow up to be a volcanologist. Never did. But, you still uh, can. Well, you know, never too old. Uh, maybe a little <laughs> bit, but uh, yeah, it's cool stuff. But I'm going to – I vow to see lava before you. That will be uh, – that, that will happen. I'm going to go to Hawaii <laughs> something and just see if I can find but thank you so much for chatting to us today um you're doing great work um when when did you get back to Washington I'm actually in New Zealand for good now um the pandemic forced me home but I'm really happy to be here so excellent well that sounds great I'm home that sounds great well thanks again for chatting to us good luck with the ongoing work and um we will hopefully chat again sometime in the future Thank you. I'd like that. Folks, that was Dr. Janine Kripner from the Smithsonian Global Volcanism Program and currently based in New Zealand. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will come back to you again next week with another Hour of Science. Have a great day. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.